0: I'd like to invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We are continuing our series entitled, What a Savior, Seeing Jesus in the Book of Luke. And today we look at the first four verses of chapter 1. In this introduction, Luke tells us his purpose and method in writing this remarkable gospel. Our sermon title today is That You May Have Certainty. That You May Have Certainty. Luke 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May God bless the preaching of his word. Blaise Pascal is a name you might know. He was one of the great minds of the 1600s. Blaise Pascal was a prodigy who, from the age of 16, made historic contributions to mathematics and to the physical sciences. He was a brilliant man who understood the power of reason and science and yet he also understood the limitations of those things. Pascal was a Christian and when he died at the age of 39 years old they discovered a small piece of parchment that was sewn inside his jacket. He carried it with him wherever he went And on that paper was a description from an evening years earlier. At the top of the piece of paper, Pascal had drawn a cross. And beneath the cross were these words. In the year of the Lord, 1654, Monday, November 23rd, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers nor of the scholars. Certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy. 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 Tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. Let me never be separated from him. We need more of that today. Pascal's Night of fire, as it is called, was an experience of God in Christ that overwhelmed his soul with joy and peace. And he carried it with him for the rest of his life. We were reminded earlier from Sidney Hunter's baptism testimony that God is still meeting people in moments of fire. The God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason that Blaise Pascal had such joy and peace is found in that word that he repeats, certainty, certainty, an assurance of faith, a confidence in the reality of Christ and heaven. In that moment, why did that evening mean so much to him? Because in that moment, the truth of Christianity was settled for him. Doubt was vanquished and he was given gospel certainty. Blaise Pascal understood what Luke understood in writing his gospel. And that is that certainty related to the things of God comes both through the mind and through the heart. It comes through reason and through relationship. It comes through logic and through love. It comes through examination and through experience. Certainty comes as we are convinced that the gospel is true and good and beautiful. Luke says he wrote this entire gospel for this reason verse 4. So put this as the verse over everything that we will see as we walk through this series. Verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty in the original is asphalia, where we get the word asphalt. That which is firmly grounded, that which cannot be moved. Certainty in the original is in fact the final word in our passage which gives it a special emphasis. It is the exclamation point at the end of this introductory paragraph. So that you may know concerning the things you have been taught, The certainty that you may have absolute certainty and confidence regarding this message of salvation. Theophilus, and we don't know who that is, had been instructed in these things. The great message of salvation in Christ. All of the events of the gospel He'd been instructed in those things, but Luke wants him and he wants all of the readers of this gospel to have assurance and certainty. One of the things we learn from that is this, that not everyone who has been taught Christ and not everyone who believes Christ has great certainty about Christ. We are all familiar, aren't we friends, with doubt and uncertainty. And at times, doubt can grow strong in our hearts and our minds. Is the Bible really true? Does God exist? Can Christianity really be trusted with my life and with eternity? Is Jesus who he says he is? And it is so often the case that doubt can then give way to fear and unbelief in some cases a lack of certainty has led some to the deconstruction of their faith and to an abandoning of Christ altogether there's a scene later in Luke it's in chapter 17 verse 5 when the disciples cry out to Jesus increase our faith And that cry, that prayer, remains our cry today. In this dark and sad world, faith is a constant battle. And we are all prone to doubt God's gracious revelation of himself. Once the Christian wanders into Doubting Castle, it is only a moment of time until he is taken captive by giant despair. For all of us, I would not hesitate to say that the most important thing in life is certainty about Jesus. That you may have certainty. Certainty that he really was sent by God. Certainty that he really did live a sinless life. Certainty that he died in the place of sinners to absorb the wrath of God that we all deserve for our sin. Certainty that he really did rise victorious on the third day. We need to know for certainty that he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over all things. We need to know with certainty that he loves us with an everlasting love, that eternal life awaits all who are in Christ. God's desire today through his word is to speak to us in all of our doubts. His desire is to strengthen and bolster our faith in Christ, that we might know for certain the reliability of Christianity. Someone called Luke the gospel of knowing for sure, I like that. This is the gospel of knowing for sure, and the entire book is written to that end, but here today we look at some of the points from this introduction that deepen our certainty. One, the gospel events were a public fulfillment of divine promises. The gospel events, the whole events concerning Christ and the message of salvation were a public fulfillment of divine promises. This is verse one. So extraordinary were these historic events surrounding Christ that verse 1 says many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. You see that word accomplished there in verse 1? Accomplished could also be translated fulfilled. God accomplished these things just as he promised. Old Testament prophecies have come to pass. And it all happened, verse 1, among us. Meaning it happened publicly rather than happening privately. The gospel events were a public fulfillment of divine promises. Later, it's in volume 2 of Luke's work in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul makes this same point. When he is in custody and stands before King Agrippa and Festus to make his defense. It's in Acts chapter 26 and he says I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And the text says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul says all of this, the gospel events, the events concerning Christ, it wasn't done in a corner. This didn't happen. The Christian message concerns public facts. It is a true and rational message that what Moses and the prophet said has come to pass is verse one. Now point number two for the certainty of our faith in believing. The gospel events were confirmed by eyewitnesses and proclaimed by ministers of the word. The gospel events were one confirmed by eyewitnesses And then proclaimed by ministers of the word. And this is exactly what we see in verse 2. Luke himself was not an eyewitness of Christ. He was likely the only non-Jew to contribute to the New Testament. He was not an eyewitness of Christ. But he refers here to those who were eyewitnesses. And he refers to... Ministers of the word who delivered the message of salvation in Christ to him and to others. This is the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts that resulted in the conversion of thousands, the baptizing of thousands, and the birth of the Christian church. They proclaimed a savior they had seen and touched. People wondered about their courage. How is it that when persecution came their way, we've been remembering today the persecuted church, Well, the early church faced this opposition and people recognized something different about them. These men had been with Jesus because they stood and said, we must obey God rather than man, even if it means persecution. There was this certainty about them and we see that in the book of Acts. They proclaimed a savior they had known. That word delivered refers to the transfer of official teaching. That is the message that God saves sinners. The heart of the good news of Christianity. That Christ died in the place of all who will turn to him for salvation. That he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. These gospel events were confirmed by many eyewitnesses and were proclaimed by apostles and ministers of the word. Third, The gospel events were carefully and comprehensively researched. This is verse 3. The gospel events were carefully and comprehensively researched. Look what Luke says. He says he followed all things closely for some time past. So he didn't just follow some things selectively. He followed all things, everything concerning the identity and mission of Jesus. Birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, beginnings of the church, spread of the gospel. He followed it all. And he didn't just follow all these things. He says he followed them closely. There was a a rigor, a scrutiny, a meticulous examination and diligent research into the facts. And he didn't just do this over a free weekend, taking a bit of vacation time. He says he did this over an extended period of time, for some time past. And the reason for this was because he too would undertake to compile a narrative, and this would be, verse 3, an orderly account. It would be carefully researched. It would be reliable. It would be marked by historical precision. Here basically is Luke presenting his credentials as a researcher and historian. He is demonstrating and proving the reliability of his work. You can hear in this introduction, you can sense his passion for painstaking accuracy in the work that he is doing. And that is, of course, essential if his readers are to have certainty, because the accuracy and reliability and consistency of Scripture is foundational for our assurance. One of the great lessons that we learn from Luke is that faith is not at odds with historical research, with reason, with a close consideration of the facts surrounding Jesus. I think too often Christians undervalue the intellect And the kind of academic and historic rigor Luke is demonstrating here. Luke is a first class historian. He's like an investigative reporter. He wanted to know everything there was to know about Jesus. And his sources were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word mentioned earlier in verse 2. Here's what this likely looked like. We know from Paul's letters that Luke was a fellow worker. Philemon 24, 2 Timothy 4.11 Paul calls him Luke the beloved physician in Colossians 4:14. 4, we also know in the book of Acts written by Luke there are sections of the narrative. I wonder if you've ever noticed this in Acts, sections of the narrative that switch to the first person plural we. We is in the narrative which means that the author Luke was present during those events. Luke was there during Paul's two-year confinement in Caesarea, Acts 24, and he would have had an abundance of time to interact with eyewitnesses and confirm testimonies in Jerusalem and in Galilee. Here's something. Commentators say that the remarkable insights into the private world of Mary and her family that we'll see in the, the opening couple of chapters here suggest that it's very likely that Mary herself was among those interviewed by Luke. How can Luke tell us what Mary felt in chapter 1, verse 29? How can he tell us what Elizabeth said alone in her room, chapter 1, verse 25? It is almost certain that he sat with these women and interviewed them. Can you imagine... Imagine the effect Luke's research had on him and his own soul. Imagine yourself there. Mary, nice to meet you. Tell me more about how you responded when the angel appeared. He sits and interviews Elizabeth. Elizabeth, what was it like that moment when you saw the pregnant Mary? When you were pregnant with John? Martha, tell me about the day when Jesus adjusted you for being too anxious and troubled about many things and said that Mary had chosen the good portion. And you're all right with me including that in my narrative? Zacchaeus, tell me when Jesus called to you in the tree and said that he was coming to your house that day. How did that encounter change your life forever? He heard it, and I can imagine Luke listening through tears, taking notes, interviewing other witnesses, his heart melting within him as he hears from those who encountered the Savior and were changed by him forever. As he hears of the public events of Christ's ministry and death and resurrection... You see, there were many eyewitnesses still living when Luke's finished work was broadly circulated, and not all of those eyewitnesses of Christ were Christians. Not all of them were pro-Jesus. And so, it was 30 years earlier that these events had occurred. If Luke was not precise and accurate, they would dismiss and disprove his writing. There were many eyewitnesses. If you went to set about something that happened 30 years ago, well, there would be so many living eyewitnesses to confirm these things. That's the situation. And if Luke is not precise and accurate, they would dismiss it. They would disprove his writing. And so it was imperative that he use great care to be factual. Luke did his work. And yet... Ultimately, our certainty does not come from our confidence in Luke's skills. Behind Luke's research, behind Luke's writing was the ultimate author, God himself, who breathed out this authoritative book. The gospel events were written in sacred scripture and the Holy Spirit himself attests to their truthfulness. The ultimate author of this book is not Luke, it is God. Behind Luke's perspiration is divine inspiration. God, in his great love, in his great care for us, determined to preserve in written form the apostolic message of those who knew Christ during his earthly ministry. This gospel was not only proclaimed, it had to be written down. This is the mercy and kindness of God. The same God who sent his son into the world to save us has recorded, has preserved this authoritative message of salvation for all time in his word. And God did it, why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke searched out these historic events, he spoke to many eyewitnesses. He heard the apostolic preaching and he concluded that the teaching of Christianity really is the most plausible and satisfying of explanations. Intellectually, historically, spiritually, it is all true, good, and beautiful. What Luke does in this narrative, he brings together the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of historical research to deepen our confidence in Christ. That you may have certainty. And oh, how I have prayed that we as a church would have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Let me conclude with four exhortations for us as a church. These will be brief. But this is what we, as a church family, I pray, take away from this text. One, let's embrace the reliability of Scripture. We who stand on the Word of God and the Word of God itself welcomes examination, welcomes critique, welcomes hard questions because the Word of God has handled every objection brought against it century after century. I've had people tell me that the Bible is unreliable and full of contradictions. I do think after spending some time with Luke this week that he takes that particular uh, accusation personally, that the Bible is full of contradictions. But also it's the case in my experience that that charge almost always remains vague without specific examples supplied. And if there are examples given, they are simply differences Not contradictions, and people fail to make that distinction between differences and and contradictions. I've also had people say to me, the Bible has been used to support fill in the blank, these terrible and awful things. And sadly, that is correct. The Bible has been used to support awful things. But simply because a good thing is misused to support a bad thing does not mean that the good thing is bad or untrue. God can be trusted and his word is true. Build your life on the solid rock of his word. Let's embrace the reliability of this book. It is all we have and it is gloriously true. Two, second exhortation, let's value apologetics. Let's value apologetics. Apologetics involves providing an appeal, a defense of the Christian faith, doing so with grace and with humility. It means speaking to objections. It means knowing why we believe. It means, above all, presenting faith in Christ as satisfying to the mind and to the heart. If you, there are so many mistaken ideas about faith. If you think that faith in contrast to reason and science, is for people who believe things without any evidence, you have misunderstood the nature of faith. Everyone has a set of beliefs and values that cannot be scientifically proven and requires what you could call a certain type of faith. And faith does not mean taking a blind leap or believing something without Good reasons. In their book Apologetics at the Cross, Joshua Chatraw and Mark Allen write this They say, to believe in Christianity is not to have blind faith. There are many valid historical, rational, experiential, and societal reasons for the Christian faith. And in fact, the Christian account of reality offers a more livable and wide ranging explanation of reality. than the accounts offered by secularism. Yes, it does. And I see, as I look at the Church of Christ today and our own church family, a great need for apologetics to be restored to the church. And I hope to see more Christians in our church engaged in apologetics, both for reaching the lost and for strengthening the faith of those who believe. Let's value apologetics. Third, let's strive to strengthen our faith. In the days ahead, we will all need to be prepared by having our faith strengthened. This is the great need that stands before us and this is especially important if you are a a recent convert, say someone who has come to Christ just in recent years or if you are a young person or if you are a Christian who is inclined to doubt, it will be especially important for you to pursue this certainty concerning the things we have been taught. I wanna say for those in high school, for those in college, I am sure that during these years, your faith will be attacked. And it may be that doubts will surface, questions may rise, And you need to know that there are good and reliable answers. There are satisfying answers to your questions. Ask them to to someone you know. To a Christian friend of yours. Who can help you to strengthen your faith. For those inclined to doubting. It may be that you find yourself today at a place where you are longing for greater assurance and certainty. Well, there's good news. Luke says that he wrote this gospel for you. That you would have certainty. And I would remind you that you are not alone, but stand with many of us saints who know what it is to experience doubt. I asked my wife, Megan, if I could share this. When we were on our honeymoon, one night at dinner, she broke down in tears saying she might not be a Christian. And I said, you wait until now to tell me? (laughs) You know... um, Fortunately, I, did, I packed some Charles Spurgeon with me and I was able to, to take care of her soul in that moment. And I have, I have seen Megan grow tremendously over the years in strengthening her faith. We all need to grow in certainty. And the main way to gain assurance is to look at this presentation of Jesus that we have throughout the book of Luke. The way to grow is to fix your eyes on him because the way that doubts grow is from poor views of Christ. Doubt is not merely, we must understand this, doubt is not merely intellectual and philosophical, it is spiritual. And that is why the best way to fight doubt is not just by focusing on doubt, but by focusing on God, by focusing on his truth, by taking in his word. John Stott says, faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Doubts can have many sources and causes but most of the time our doubts come from wrong or dim views of God and so what better way to blast our doubt and to cultivate gospel certainty than to look to Christ himself as he is presented in this gospel of Luke and as we are made more certain we will then be emboldened to talk with others about this faith that has changed the course of human history and that has changed our lives forever let's strive to strengthen our faith and then fourth and last Let's rely on Christ for salvation. It occurs to me that there are certainly some here who have never truly known Jesus. And it may be that you know that about yourself, that you are unsure what you think about him. I am glad that you are here. And I believe that God has brought you here and we have prayed for you. My question for you is whether you are willing to closely examine these things Just as Luke did. Why not read the gospel of Luke? Why not consider the claims of Christianity? And I believe you will discover by the grace of God. That Christianity really does present a better story of the world. A story that is true and good and beautiful. It is my hope and my prayer. That every one of us would see our need for a savior. And would rely on Christ alone for salvation at the end of the day each one of us has the same greatest need I have this same need and that is to be forgiven of my sin to be accepted by God to be given eternal life and Luke was written for this purpose written that we would respond to Jesus by collapsing on him as our only hope of salvation where else can we go but to rely on this one who has given himself for us and for our salvation. And as you do so, as you collapse on him, remember, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of your savior. Frederick Buchner says, Lord, I believe, help, my unbelief is the best any of us can really do, but thank God it is enough. Yes, it is enough. Why? Because Christ is mighty to save May we rely on this savior alone for salvation and may we spend our days growing in certainty and the joy of this great salvation. I'd like to invite the band to return and let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray that God would give us this certainty as we study Luke. Father, we ask even in this moment, Lord, that you by the fire of your Holy Spirit, by your presence here with us would grant us this certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us in our unbelief. And may it be even now that faith, through the power of your word, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, rises in our hearts. Lord, for any here who do not know you, may this be the day of salvation, the day in which they turn to you and confess their sins and cry out their need for the forgiveness of sins that you alone can bring. And Lord, it is our desire that you would raise up an army of apologists and evangelists in the church who are faithful to defend the truth. Lord, perhaps you have been and even are now laying that particular burden on the hearts of some who are here. Lord, would you bless them in their study of apologetics and their study of your word. Would you raise up a generation that is committed to defending the faith and doing so with grace and humility and with a sense of wonder that we ourselves should be saved at all. Lord, to you be glory for the riches of your grace. What a savior we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Give us this gospel certainty, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.